we are in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 32, the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, beginning at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me if anyone If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for the words of Christ, the words of life, and we pray that we may come to Him, that we may have life. We pray that we may seek the glory that comes from God, so that even now as we listen, we are preparing ourselves for things greater. And so bless us to that end as we hear. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Well, when great claims are made, there usually has to be sufficient evidence to back up that claim. If uh, one of you were to sit here this morning and say you are the greatest soccer player in the world, it would be rather hard to believe your claim uh, for the very simple reason that we know you are not. Uh, Someone could say uh, to... Lionel Messi, uh, are you the greatest soccer player in the world? And 
he would be able to point to millions upon millions upon millions of people who would testify that he is. He would be able to point to the records that he has set. He would be able to point to the longevity of career and so on and so forth. And there would be witnesses, there would be evidence to back up a great claim. And this is actually, in the case of almost any realm of life, great claims require witnesses. In the case of Christ, he makes the greatest claims that can be made by any man. It really puts into perspective any claim someone can make to being a great athlete or musician or whatever it is. He is saying he is the only hope for the world, that he is the true and only Son of the Father, that you cannot have life unless you have his life. You cannot see unless he gives you eyes to see and so on. He makes the greatest claims but to make the greatest claims, there has to be witnesses. And so, Jesus will begin by saying that his greatest claim, in a sense, is that he actually doesn't do anything on his own. And this is our greatest claim as a Christian, by the way. We should be able to say, I can do nothing on my own. That's your greatest boast as a Christian. I can do nothing on my own. It's not I, but as we have been able to sing this morning, Christ in me. Christ is saying, yet not I, but the Father in me. And we are uh, those where that reality trickles down through Christ into our own lives. So he says, I can do nothing on my own. In fact, even my judgments, even the things that I say, even the things that I think, even the signs that I perform... They are from the Father, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me, so that everything that Christ does is in subjection to the Father's will, and it is in the strength that the Father provides for Him as a servant. So he makes the claim, if I alone, if I am the only one who bear witness about myself, then my testimony is not true. This is a, a startling point in many respects. Because Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not here justifying my own claims by my own strength, when in fact, actually, he could have in a certain sense. He is God. He has to justify himself to nobody, but he is even for their sake saying, my testimony is not true unless others bear witness. And who is that? Well, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, how does the Father bear witness about the Son? Well, he provides witnesses. So it's not simply that the Father will say, as he does at the transfiguration and the baptism, this is my Son whom I love. Listen to him. Or I am well pleased with him. He will provide witnesses. And there are three ways that we have read of whereby the Father bears witness to who Jesus is. The first is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a powerful witness because there are witnesses to the validation of his own ministry. There was a revival that broke out. People were going to him. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and yet he says about Jesus, that is the one. That is the one who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, the one whose straps of his sandals and I am not worthy to untie he is the bridegroom. I am merely the best man pointing you to the bridegroom. John the Baptist bears witness that Jesus is 
the Son of God. That is the role of the Holy Spirit too. Like John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, when He comes into the life of a person, that person will be pointed to Christ. Because that is how the Father is working in this world. He is seeking to bring everything into subjection to Christ for His glory and so forth. And so the first witness is John the Baptist. But notice the second in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Even though John was an Old Testament prophet, my testimony is greater. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. Notice, any miracle that Jesus does is a miracle that God has ordained for Jesus to perform. And He will not perform a miracle more or less than what the Father has given Him to do. He doesn't just go around and because He's also the Divine Son of God, just say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make birds turn into stones and stones into birds and look at all this I can do. He only does the works the Father gives Him to do. And these bear witness about Me that the Father has sent Me. Now, in what sense do Christ's signs, His miracles, bear witness about Him? And this is a most interesting study, and uh, I assure you we could spend a great deal of time, but I just want to open up a few aspects of how His signs bear witness that He is who He says He is. The first thing to remember is that Jesus will perform a miracle. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 5, He will say, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk to someone who is unable to walk. Which is easier to say? Well, it's easier in a sense to say your sins are forgiven. You're just saying it. There's no need to validate it. It's just simply a statement. But if you say take up your mat and walk to someone who cannot walk, that requires evidence. So then Jesus will put those two statements together and say, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. So, what He says about His authority to forgive sins is validated by the fact that someone who could not walk is now able to walk. But more than that, when you look at the nature of His miracles, they actually bear witness to the fact that Jesus really is performing the works of the Father. So, in Job chapter 9 that we read earlier, you don't need to turn there, but I will read to you again from verse 8. Speaking of God, and God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God alone. In the Old Testament, God is the one who walks on water, who tramples on the waves of the sea. And then in verse 11, something most interesting to me. Job says, Behold, He passes by Me. Keep those words in mind. He tramples on the waves of the sea. Behold, He passes by Me. And I see Him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive Him. Later in Job, chapter 38, verse 16, God will say to him again, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you been able to do this, Job? And the answer is no. 
So lo and behold, the disciples are making headway against a strong wind and they're not getting anywhere. And Jesus is on the other side of the lake. And we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 49, but when, or verse 48, and about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them walking on the sea. And actually, the Greek Septuagint translation of the Old Testament and the Greek of Mark is almost identical for God trampling on the waves of the sea and Jesus trampling on the waves of the sea in Mark. But then also, Mark says He meant to pass by them. Job says, Behold, He passes by me. Why did Jesus mean to pass by them? Because Job has said about God, He passes by me. But then, because God is now revealing Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, when they saw Him in Mark's Gospel, trampling on the waves of the sea, walking on the waters, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. And they were terrified. But what does Jesus say? Take heart. It is I. Those are the words of God. It is I. Now why do I make this point? And I will make one more point, by the way. Because when Jesus does a miracle, they should know from the Old Testament that that miracle is rooted in revelation of who God is. He's not just saying, well, you know what? I'm going to show I'm powerful. I'm going to walk on water. That's not why Jesus does miracles. Jesus does miracles to fulfill and to reveal who He is. That's why people who go around today claiming to do all these miracles, you wonder, what are you doing? What are you doing? Are these signs, are they miracles? And maybe there are miracles, maybe they're not. But what are you actually trying to do? Because when Jesus performed a miracle, it was a sermon. It was revelation. He was expressing something about who He is and what He was doing. So, for example... In Isaiah, you will find there's a lot of language about the coming messianic age. And one of the marks of the messianic age is that blind people are going to see. So in chapter 29, verse 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Later on in Isaiah, the first servant song, chapter 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. This is the Father speaking to the Son. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, the light for the nations. To do what? To open the eyes that are blind. Now what happens in John's Gospel? Chapter 9, one of the most entertaining chapters in all of God's Word, by the way. One of the funniest guys in all of God's Word. The man born blind. And as he receives the miracle of sight, he has this to say in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Go through the Old Testament, look at all the miracles, and you will find that opening the eyes of the blind is reserved for someone special, God's servant, in the Messianic age, and that is Christ Himself. So when He says, going back to verse 36, the works the Father has given Me to accomplish, the Father has wrapped up every sign, every miracle, 
in Old Testament symbolism and language and given Christ the power to perform those. It's quite beautiful. Now there's another witness. You have John the Baptist, you have the signs, the miracles, you also have the Scriptures in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Notice something most remarkable. He's saying this to religious Jews who are attacking him, confronting him, not believing in him, and he indicts them. What does he say? God's voice, his voice, you have never heard. Imagine saying that to these people. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His Word abiding in you. Now, what's so remarkable about that? Well, let's look at these statements. His voice you have never heard. Moses heard God's voice, but Jesus is actually speaking to them and He is the voice of God. And He is saying to people, as the voice of God, you have never heard God's voice. So what does He mean by that? He doesn't mean it in terms of just an audible voice. He's saying, you don't have ears to hear because you are idolaters. And Isaiah had this problem in chapter 6. Jesus now has this problem where He is speaking the voice of God and they don't hear it. He says, His form you have never seen. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. And yet, they don't see that He is God. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And what's more, you do not have His Word abiding in you. The psalmist said, God's Word dwells in my heart. I've stored Your Word up in my heart. Jesus is the Word of God. And yet they do not have His Word abiding in them. They do not have God's love in them. Now, as he continues, he says in verse 39, you search the Scriptures. Let's think about this. And let's pause for a moment. They actually search the Scriptures. How many of us search the Scriptures? How many of us, like the prophets of old and like angels who long to look into these things, how many of us actually search the Scriptures? They searched the Scriptures. Now, they're wrong, by the way. But at least they were searching. Imagine being condemned even by Jewish unbelievers who searched the Scriptures but didn't find Christ. And you're a Christian. What excuse do you have with all of the tools available to see Christ everywhere and yet you don't search the Scriptures? Which is worse? I don't know. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet, it is those Scriptures that you search that actually bear witness about Me. You will forgive me for the uh, illustration, um, uh, especially if you're a German, of the Japan game in the World Cup. Uh, because there was a point at which I was watching that game with Barb and the ball appeared to go over the end line and the Japanese player gets to it and you can see even a bit of grass between the ball and the line. And to me, I was convinced. I says, oh, Barb, look, it went out. 
But then it goes to VAR. You hear VAR. It's, it's a bunch of guys in a booth with all these screens and TVs and there's a whole bunch of them with mics and they're all making sure that the most accurate and fair result happens in a game. Now, whether they get it right, always it's not neither here nor there. So I say to Barb with a degree of great confidence, because that's how I act on the couch when soccer's on, and that's about the only place I have a great deal of confidence, there's no way that's a goal. Because my perspective was a perspective where I saw the ball from one angle. But then it came back, actually the goal stood. And I says, how is this possible? There must be corruption going on. It's FIFA. There must be something wrong. I don't understand this. And yet FIFA released the images that looking from above, it actually, when you look from the 3D perspective, the ball technically was still in bounds by a whisker, but it was still technically in bounds because the rule states that it actually is from the top view of seeing whether it was over the line. Now, the point is this. These Jews were looking at the Old Testament Scriptures with completely the wrong perspective, and they were so convinced that their perspective was right that they were prepared to condemn the Messiah who stood in front of them, whose voice they could not hear, whose form they could not see, whose words were not dwelling in them, because they did not read the Scriptures as they should have. They searched them, but they were wrong. And Spurgeon has this story, it's a bit of a long quote, but I don't think you're busy. He speaks about how those sermons which are fullest of Christ are the most likely to be blessed by the con- to the conversion of the hearers. And then he speaks of the story of an old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. This has probably happened many times. And when the old minister was asked what he thought about the sermon by the young man, he says, oh, I don't think I quite liked it. That happens a lot too. So then they ask him why. And he says, well, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all because there was no Christ. And now he's speaking to the young man who is speaking to him. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ in the text. Okay. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road that will get you where? To London. Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Christ, and I mean to keep on this track until I find Him. You might start out in Scunthorpe. Even worse, Birmingham. Even worse, Newcastle. But you can get to London. You may need to travel a little bit, but you can get to London. And the young man even uh, objects. He says, but suppose you're preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. To which he says, then I will go over the hedge and ditch, but I will get to Him. Jesus is saying this precisely. They all bear witness about Me. Everything. Not just, oh, Psalm 23. I can see how that relates to Christ. It's every psalm is a messianic psalm. Every word, every statement, everything will bear witness to Jesus. Because in actual fact, the words that were written down actually came through the mouth of Jesus to those prophets. 
So he made sure every word was about him. Any of you have a red-letter Bible? Come on, admit it. Receive your glory. You got ripped off. Every letter should be read. Every letter. Because what is the concept of the red-letter Bible? The red-letter Bible is the words of Jesus are in red. And the words of everyone else are in black. But actually, every word is Christ's word. Not just points to Christ, but actually comes from the mouth of Christ. That's the remarkable thing. Now, why can't they see this? Well, because they're idolaters. And why are they idolaters? Because they want glory that comes from God, not from God, but from man. They refuse, verse 40, to come to Christ that they may have life. They are stubborn. They are stiff-necked. They are like their forefathers. Now, Jesus says, I don't receive glory from people. And what he means by that is, I don't receive your type of glory that you give to others. Of course, he receives glory from people who are indwelt by his spirit, but he's not talking about that. He doesn't want the glory that comes from people whereby those people in verse 42 don't have the love of God in them. Why would he want such glory? He wants nothing to do with that glory. He's come in his Father's name and they don't receive him. He wouldn't want their glory because their glory means nothing. Now their judgment is not so much that they are not believing in Jesus, but what's remarkable is that not only do they disbelieve the Messiah who is in front of them speaking to them, but they actually believe in false messiahs. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. There were about 64 messiahs that came in the first century. Most of them were killed because they didn't want any threat to the Roman order. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be a messiah. One of them rose again from the dead. But they believed in false messiahs. And it's really quite awful. Because they believe in false messiahs because these messiahs probably told them things they wanted to hear. And this connects then to the fact that they can't believe, verse 44, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying they're basically open to the idea of a Messiah that flatters them on their terms. Micah had this problem in chapter 2, verse 11 of Micah. He says, if a man should go about and utter wind and lies. I like that. I'm going to accuse someone of that one day when they preach a bad sermon. That was wind and lies. Saying, and this is what the wind and lies was. I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be just the preacher for this people. A preacher who comes alive, blessing, blessing, many, many blessings. And that is why preachers who preach like that generally do fill out stadiums and have big churches and arrive in limousines because people love that. But ultimately what you find is that Christ doesn't receive the glory that belongs only to Him in those contexts. And it's rather the preacher. 
And this becomes a problem later on in John because there are people who actually believed in Jesus' name, but for fear of the Jews and being kicked out of the synagogue, they would not confess their faith publicly for, verse 33 of chapter 12, they loved the glory. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Notice that word more. Please stay with me on this. They would say, we want God's glory. We want God to speak well of us. We want God to show favor to us. We believe in God. They would have said all the religious lingo they needed to say, but they still loved man's glory more than God's. They didn't say, oh no, I don't want God's glory. I want man's glory. Nobody says that. What religious person goes around saying, yeah, no, I'm all for man's glory, not God's. Nobody says that. I'll tell you what religious people do. They say all the right things, but in reality, they really want the glory that comes from man, the praise that comes from man, more than the praise that comes from God. Because the praise that comes from man is a praise that is on their terms and suits their flesh and gives them the temporary fix that they are looking for. Because God's glory, in most instances that He gives to us, and we are to seek the glory that comes from God, Christ says that, that is a glory that is delayed. That's the real issue of the Christian faith in many respects, is will you wait for the glory that will be yours one day? For I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to what? the future glory that is to be revealed to us. It is a delayed glory. Just like Moses who considered the pleasures of Egypt as not worth snatching at, but what? Chose rather to be mistreated. Why? To receive the glory that comes from God. Christ in His life, what? Mistreated, rejected, scorned. Why? Because He was waiting to receive the glory that comes from God. The problem is not wanting glory. The problem is Wanting glory now on your terms rather than God's. So who is their accuser? Well, this is even most interesting because their accuser is the last person they think would accuse them. Notice verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Could Jesus accuse them to the Father? Yes. There's a certain sense in which he's saying, I don't even need to accuse you to the Father. I could, but I don't even need to. Because there's someone else who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's quite shocking when the last person is against you that you think should be for you. I, I still remember, I still remember uh, Katie's too uh, old to remember this. She wasn't born. She wasn't thought of. But I still remember the room my mother brought Barb into before we got married. And you know what she said to her? Not, this is the apple of my eye. You would be a mad woman not to marry this fine young man. She actually says, don't marry him. Uh, some of you are shocked. If you knew my mother, you wouldn't be. Don't marry him. He's just like his father. Oh, you can imagine. My wife, being a woman of wisdom, chose to reject those words. But I was like, Mother, 
You're supposed to be my greatest defender. You're supposed to be the one who, even though I may not be the best thing since sliced bread, is, is propping me up, you know, and getting me a wife. I mean, what chance does one stand when their own mother's against them? And you can actually look at trials. And I, I preached this sermon, I mentioned this issue, and Monica told me about some Abbotsford murderer and the way in which they found out about this murderer because he would leave messages. And finally... His mother heard the message and called and said, that's my son. Imagine thinking, you're on trial, you come in and your mother's your alibi and she's going to say you were at home that night when the murder took place and she gets onto the stand and she opens her mouth and she says, actually, he wasn't at home that night. Actually, he came home with blood on his hands. This is what Moses is doing to these religious people. They think Moses is vindicating them in their opposition against Christ, but Moses is actually condemning them because he, if he were to be there at that point in time, would point to Christ just as John the Baptist did and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it wouldn't matter if Moses was there. We know that, right? The rich man and Lazarus, even if someone should come back from the dead, you wouldn't believe and points back to Moses and the prophets. People are going to be condemned, not even necessarily by Christ Himself, because there's not even a need for Christ to waste His words with such people. Other things, inanimate and animate objects, will condemn people. There will be pulpits that will rise up and condemn preachers. You will not need God to do it. The pulpit will say, hey, I heard all of that. And it was false teaching. There will be boats and lakes that rise up and condemn people who would rather have been on water on a Sunday than go and serve Christ in His household with God's people. There will be restaurants that will rise up and white spot will condemn, not just make you feel bad, but it will condemn people who chose rather to feed their bellies instead of serve God. There will be children who will rise up and condemn their parents. Spouses, why? Because they were putting these things before God. Liquor stores, gadgets, televisions, all of these things that God has created. It's almost as though the creation and all of these genius inventions that man has created will one day raise their voices against man and woman, boy and girl, and condemn them because they put those things before God. So what is your only hope? Your only hope is that Jesus is the one who takes away all those condemnations, all of those voices, all of those things that could rightly stand before God in front of you and condemn you for your idolatry, for your wickedness, for your blindness, for your refusal to listen, and on and on. And Christ will stand there and mute all of those things. And rather, instead of words of condemnation, they will be the opposite. Words of approval. Words of love. Instead of you are condemned, you are accepted. Instead of you deserve hell, you will be with me in glory. But it must be only if Christ is first and not someone where we can say we loved 
the joys of the world more than the joys of Christ. Oh, we loved Christ's joys, but we loved the joys of the world more. Will Christ be the one who stands before you and God and instead of condemnation brings you salvation? If that is so, then He alone is worthy of first place in your life. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for the words of Christ that go before the Father on our behalf. Not words of condemnation, but words of salvation. Words whereby He speaks well of us. And if Christ speaks well of us, it is because He is speaking only the words the Father has given to Him. And so we know that we will be accepted on that day. But may it be a day where Christ truly is first and foremost in our lives. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.